This is episode 37 of the Brilliant Podcast. This week, surprisingly, our topic is sort of a surprising topic. We're going to talk about forgiveness as sort of the, the bulk of what we're going to talk about. But that, of course, will be after some news topics. Yeah, and so this came about from a nice email that we got that was in the form of a topic request. And so I'm just going to read part of the email here. This is a topic that's come up numerous times for me recently, and I've heard Bellamy allude to it several times, that when anarchists have conflicts with one another, especially in dense urban areas, we cut each other off, alienate each other, etc. There are obviously a lot of Christian reference, divorce, etc., but I've been looking into anarchist literature about forgiveness for some time and can't seem to dig anything up. I do think forgiveness is different from accountability processes, but also obviously related. The snitches get stitches thing is also related, I think. Is cutting people off even the best tactic for us? Are there unrecoverable transgressions? Are perpetrators of various transgressions, both dogmatic and personal, not also victims of a sort, i.e. their social constructivity, the extreme extension of this being that rapists also need social support, and that banishment just compounds and reproduces social problems, Anyways, I was wondering if you'd consider doing an episode about forgiveness. So thanks a lot for that email, and I appreciate it because it's, I don't think it's something I ever would have considered as a topic myself, and um, that makes it rich, and also the fact that Aragorn and I have been going in different directions in preparing for this, I think, makes it rich as well. Um, so where do you want to go with this at the moment, yeah, well, why don't we skip, uh, sort of leave that lingering in people's minds and move ahead through our outline and then hit it hit it later. Mm -hmm. And so you have some news with you that is possibly related to this? Do you want to get into that? Yeah, I'm not sure actually how much I want to talk about it. Um, the short and long, of, of course, of last episode is sort of a lot of exciting, dramatic um behavior there were sort of two things that shook out from it that were um uh i guess personally meaningful emotionally meaningful the first was uh just like a day or two after the portland event where uh, if you recall i um the presentation was intended to be a sort of conversation around what i call the anarchist franchises sort of the the way in which we have created these sort of patterned responses to certain sort of stimuli. So for instance, in the case of Antifa, Antifa is, is the way in which we can, we violently uh, uh, respond to, to fascists. Um, you know, food, not bombs is sort of the, the, the way in which we sort of do not charity charity. And, yeah. um, and then anarchist book book fairs being the way in which we sort of propagandize ourselves, you know, find a place where we can meet people without getting arrested. Uh, and by people, I mean strangers to anarchism. Um, anyways, there the, are the, the, these broad topics about sort of like what we need and how, how is it that we're behaving in such a way to either meet those needs or not. These were the sort of topics I wanted to to sort of get into, but I also wanted to to speak to the current antifa moment uh, from from my own experience, and um, so I tried to put that together in in 
a way that could be read, especially the, with the emphasis on the fact that I was going to sort of tell war stories from back in the day. Yeah. And, and, um, and the, the call out, the workshop, the, the proposal for people to come and do this with me was met with, with a lot of nastiness. Um, Alexander Reed Ross really used the opportunity to, you know, sort of um, state that this confirms that I am a fascist, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the next thing that happened, and this is sort of the, the first pass at, at what how people responded, was uh, we had given a, a box of books to the Sacramento people who were organizing anti-fa support. And, um, and so these one of the people involved in this uh, was Eric McDavid. Um, oh, okay. So he um, he reached out to me via email, and then didn't respond when I responded back, and then <laughs> and then we received a sort of curt but lengthy email from the Sacramento prisoner people basically saying that they denounce us and that they're cutting ties with us and that they're wow. returning returning our books, which of course were intended to be like, you know, gifts if you donated twenty dollars sort of a thing to the to the people who were injured at at the uh anti file moment. And um and so this was sort of, you know, I mean as you can imagine, like we wanted to respond to this. Uh, um uh had strong feelings and, and 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 more importantly had strong feelings because there's no way that you could have read my presentation and sort of a pro fascist. Got... <laughs> well, but it's not just, but it's not just that. It's like you couldn't have read it in such a way that the way you would, would want to want to respond would necessarily be denouncing. So, in fact, what was happening, or what happened in that context, was that they they were responding to the drama and not the and not the the thing. And, and and more importantly, that they wanted to, to respond first rather than have any conversation about it or, you know, what the presentation was or, or any of the rest. And um, and so this was really heartbreaking to me because it, it sort of speaks to the fact that, like, this is the political times that we live in and I'm either out of touch or uh, or I'm just not going to be it, it, I'm not capable of sort of engaging with, uh, you know, what this means, what this looks like and. And yeah, yeah. See, these are I, I miss out on so much of the fun now that I live out in the middle of nowhere, don't I? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, I'm going to ask something that sounds uncharitable, and I'm going to couch it by saying, obviously, I, I don't really know these these people. But do you? Re- I mean, it's hard just hearing that gloss on the story not to read it as one of those cases of there's public denunciation. And so then everyone who is seen as a third party wants to immediately distance themselves from the person who's possibly the representation of evil and therefore declare in a public way, thus I am the good. The the problem is, is that the most public part of this denunciation was, were were a series of Facebook threads associated with an event that happened in in Portland. So you're going to have that level of stupidity being brought to bear on the whole thing. Yeah. And, and, and so, and, and, and perhaps pointedly, like I did not respond in that thread in any way, shape or form Mm -hmm. because, because for me, I live my life in the real world and not in Facebook. I use Facebook for, you know, announcing events and that's about it or, and, and goofing around. 
Yeah. So, so of course, yeah, sure, you're right. I mean, the um, uh, I can imagine why many people would, you know, have now or will now distance themselves from the source of the drama. And 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 I've definitely had friends in the past that have broken with me because they, you know, when you have as much drama in your life as I do, at some point, you know, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, what is it about me that causes all this drama <laughs> to happen? And obviously, I'm. Uh, the horrible I, moment of self-reflection. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, uh, so then that so so and of course the funny thing about all of this, they never sent the books back. Oh wow! <laughs> wow. Right, which pr- probably just means that you know they're sitting on the kitchen table, or they're going to wait until the next time they see us, so that we we don't even deserve the the price of postage. <laughs> but but it um, but it does it does sort of just speak to the moment that we're in and yeah. and. Yeah, and I feel so, I feel sad about that. And then, of course, and and again, I, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but the far worse event personally happened the the following week, um, which is that a a big pile a, a pile of my vehicles I have several vehicles uh, were vandalized were vandalized uh, during the evening. Um, this yeah. is not like three or four, three or four weeks ago. And uh, they slashed my tires. They um, poured glue all over all over my instrument panels. Right, I, I ride a motorcycle. They attempted to glue, glue the locks of my car. And um, and it's sort of uh, I the, the the truth is is that, you know that I have enough people who uh, don't love me that I I can't know who it was. But the fact that it was sort of you know date-wise proximal to this Portland event right. makes it seem like it was related or that it was someone in the anti-fi world, which of course, you know, the, um, yeah. So, so that's really put, a you know, since the last pa- podcast has really put a, I don't know what you want to say, like a patina, uh, on my feelings of, of interacting with, uh, these people in, in particular anti-fi, and um uh yeah and so i'm 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 sort of reeling from it and frankly the the expense of fixing my motorcycle means that that motorcycle is broken right now mm-hmm. um it's going to be you know at least $500 for the tires um yeah so i guess this does bring us to the topic of forgiveness but but again i i think we can cover these other things before we go there Sure, sure. Yeah, it's just um, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, you you like to, uh, you know, I think in the same way that um, there's a tendency maybe to for anarchists to want to think the best of other anarchists as far as being generous, as far as being open, honest, direct. I, I think um, one of the other ones is you know you like to think that uh, if you were to somehow quantify the capacity for critical thinking that the average anarchist would come out significantly above others but then you see when there's this um any kind of attempt at internal criticism the the backlash at times is amazing and you know i'm not just talking about these these sorts of uh flashy instances of backlash but just the the sort of anger and outrage and and about a proposal that's as insofar as i understand it because I didn't see the presentation, just saying, hey, maybe we need to take a second look at what we consider to be our baseline activities, because 
it doesn't seem like it seems like by a lot of metrics we're not doing that well right now not accomplishing the goals that we want and i remember a, a uh, an event that you and i were were both at um some time back when someone articulated that food not bombs was the most successful thing that anarchists had ever done and i, I was shocked <laughs> I mean, of course, feeding people being a basic thing, but, you know, feeding people in a way that depends entirely on all of the infrastructure that we don't like is not, to me, a, a resounding and amazing success. I mean, the truth is, is that anarchism as a perspective is, is prone to to overstatement and um, and and it's fair to say that, that the the proposal for my presentation um, came off as a sort of tongue, not not tongue in cheek, but like a little perhaps snarky of a criticism of uh, of Antifa. Uh, I said something about um, uh, living in a co- in a comic book universe that's you know sort of uh, one dimensional, yeah. technicolor, <laughs> and something about um, the. The, the title of it was the Antifa isn't epic, but it thinks it is. And that's part of the problem. Uh-huh. Um, so I didn't so, know that part of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so it's reasonable to, to be like, you know, you said something bad about my thing, but, but the, the point of it was to, t- was to talk more broadly about, you know, both the events that, that happened in Sacramento earlier this summer and Antifa as a historical tendency. Um, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, uh-huh. uh, so you were wondering about that, that self that moment of looking in the mirror and saying, why does this happen to me? And my, my quick answer would be your sense of humor. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. I mean, of course that's true. And, and, um, and I think the con- the political consequences of that are really deep. Like, like I think that that's very interesting because because if there's one thing I'm going to stand up for, I mean, like you know, it's funny. Uh, recently, someone on Anarchist News, you know, which is sort of a uh, a place where a lot of people come to enjoy talking shit about me, um, uh, someone basically said that I don't have a position, and. And in this way, they're so absolutely wrong. I do have a position, and that's humor. <laughs> Should we um, yeah, go we'll on? To the, yeah. So um, another bit of negative feedback <laughs> that we got recently uh, uh, was uh, in the form of content suggestions. And someone suggested in response to a question about context suggestions by me. Literally anything else, anti-police struggle, reprisals from the prison strike, the current situation in North Dakota, and the reverberations of the largest gathering of tribes in 100 years, shit in Guerrero, the burning of the refugee camp in Greece, changing discourse in the no-borders movement, French labor riots sending police on fire, fucking anything. It's a big world. So a a bit of feedback, strongly felt and strongly voiced. Um... And I just wanted to touch on something that I felt like we had made clear to anyone who listened to the podcast in general. Maybe this person didn't do that. Um, and this is a, an example of a more general critique about what some people call talking about or engaging with reality, reality voiced in this sort of imperious way of, you know, it's right the fuck there. How could you not 
engage with it. And my short sort of canned answer would be if you're looking for anarchist media that is full of lines like, quote, resistance is life, silence is death, long live free life. You're probably in the wrong place, and there are plenty of places that you can go to for that. And in fact, just about every other piece of um, anarchist media coming out of North America on the internet. Um, and this is this is not. There's a reason that I'm not doing that right now. Which, um, when people say talking about reality, what they really mean is talking about the news because of the way that we live. Um, the way that we live where we experience so much of what is going on in other places as various media icons that you can engage with in different ways. And of course, a big part of this is the internet and the fact that so many people hear about reality through the internet. And I am not especially interested at this point in doing anarchist media in being part of and really heavily participating in what is a sort of parade of images that are things happening someplace else that we're all supposed to keep up with because of a lot of reasons having to do with, I think, reframing what anarchism is about, which I think is a big part of this podcast. And by that, I mean, for me, it is not, anarchism is not about a cosmic battlefield between good and evil, where we're all supposed to be part of the global movement for freedom I think that comes across in a lot of the podcasts that we've done. When I was doing Free Radical Radio, I did do significantly more of this sort of critiquing or cheerleading or commenting on things that I was not actually experiencing as a person in the real world, but was experiencing as a media consumer, looking at a media image and sort of acting as though I'm in a position to say whether that was good or bad or a great thing on the cosmic scoreboard between good and evil. And I've changed my approach significantly with doing this podcast in a conscious way. Um, do you want to comment on that at all before I keep, keep trudging no, on? Keep, keep, keep on going. Keep on going. Okay. So all that being said, I think there are times when it makes sense to frame things um, when it makes sense to try to be, empirical to give a sort of empirical basis to what would otherwise be an uh, more abstract conversation and since this is about forgiveness i found it interesting with my sort of um the sort of morbid fascination that i have with the the uh, with my generation and um and what it says about our near future i found some interesting articles, especially one one longer interesting article, all of which uh, we'll include in the episode information if, if someone cares to look at these things. And it's about um, empathy and narcissism and the changes across time with that insofar as you can measure these things and what that what the consequences are of that and what the possible causes are. And I was reminded of when we first got the email about the topic of forgiveness, a conversation that uh, you and I and some others had several months ago when I was living in the Bay area. Um, and you had brought up something about how, why is it that people in my generation seem to ha very easily have these total 
falling outs where it's as if friendships are incapable of surviving even one major conflict and people would rather just have nothing to do with each other than try to work it out. Do you remember this conversation? Oh, of course. Sure. Yeah. And, and to me, this, this sort of list of data I'm going to marshal here maybe gets at that. And so the crux of this is that there was a meta-analysis, which means a, a scientific study that looks at a whole lot of other studies and tries to draw a sort of general uh, bit of information from looking at lots and lots of data. And so this meta-analysis looked at 13,000 college students from the years of 1979 to 2009, and they found that empathy, again, insofar as we could quantify such a thing, had substantially decreased over time such that 75% of college students in recent years are less empathic than the average student was 40 years ago, that that decrease is happening faster as time goes on. So the, the biggest drop-off is in the most recent years, and that at the same time, narcissism has increased, which you know you kind of expect those things to be uh, inversely related like that. And... Uh, I'm looking at all this data and it's probably too much to really go through on the, on the show here. So I'm just going to give a few highlights. So the reasons that that might be happening are, have to do with wealth and the pursuit of wealth, readership, social isolation and technology. So in terms of wealth, um, there's been a lot of psychological research that sort of uh, associates what what maybe uh, anarchists would, would like to think, that the richer people are, the less empathy they have. And millennials, in a 2006 survey, 81% of millennials surveyed said getting rich was among their generation's most important goals. 64% said it was their most important goal. With, in terms of reading, it's been found that reading less, specifically reading less literary fiction, actually lowers people's empathy, which is interesting in itself as far as um, the idea of telling stories and what it means to, to tell and participate in stories. Yeah. And, and for the first time since reading has been measured, the number of adults who read literature for pleasure in the United States has sunk below 50%, which... To be honest, from my sort of uh, pessimistic perspective, that's actually higher than I thought it would be. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, isolation. So it's been found that, that people who are socially isolated and say that they have significantly lower numbers of friends in whom they confide tend to be less generous and more likely to take advantage of people's trust. And there have been all kinds of declines across the board as far as organizations that people belong to how often family dinners happen, and even how often friends visit one another. And the last bit being technology, that uh, television watching recently reached an all-time high. Time spent on social networks is up 82% from recent previous years, and the average American teen now sends and receives 1,500 text messages a month. And so all these things have been found to decrease empathy, and so... We see, I think, across the board, especially with my generation, that kind of erosion of being willing to imagine other people's perspectives, give a fuck about people, and a sort of high willingness to write people off. And so 
I find that to be an, a useful lens to put on the stories we were telling before and where we're going to go in the conversation. Yeah, it's hard. For me, it's a little hard to hear sort of all these stories about how the kids nowadays suck. Not because yeah. I don't agree, <laughs> but but it's a little too pat. You know, it's a, it's a little too like, like, um, I mean, I seems too I mean, convenient I guess, or. Yeah, well, I mean, the way in which it's true, it's probably not going to change. So, in other words, we're not going to seize the cell phones. We're not going to, uh, you know, because I live in a college town, like, and I, I, when I'm driving around, it's it's amazing, you know, up, up towards campus, how many people just don't engage with the streets. They look up right. long enough to see that there's a green light and they cross, but they, they stare at their phone the entire time they're crossing the street. But... But I, I, so I guess there's there's something a bit more proactive, in in terms of how I I, I want to evaluate the information that you just gave, um, you know, which I guess just has to do with the fact that what what part of this do I have any control over at all, and that's my own behavior. One of the problems with me thinking about you know some of the conflicts I was mentioning earlier, and some of my general feelings about um, doing controversial things or or whatever, is I'm thinking more and more that um, uh, that perhaps I have been too surrounded by friends that aren't like I guess there's a model there's a model of friendship that that for me feels personally like it, like I'm missing and that for a lot of people seems like they they never really seem to have it and 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 I guess it somehow relates to this for me because. Um, yeah, I guess because I, I'd like to talk about the kind of relationships we have rather than just the... Wow, that's really loud. Is it, is it a plane? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can just pause for a second. It's, it's just passing over right now. That's funny because I, I have the mic pointing you know, completely away from the window. So... Uh, I recently saw some old friends of mine, friends from 30 years in my past, and a lot of what we talked about, you know, and of course these aren't intellectual people, they're not people who sort of moved to the city to be around people who were more like them. Um, fundamentally, I'd say that these are people who changed to stay where we're from rather than, you know, became something different or new. And and a lot of our conversation was about the fact that the best friends we ever had or this friendship as a teenager, and more pointedly, a friendship that looked like a pack. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, you know, we always, or many of us often say, you know, we're a pack animal, we're a pack animal, and it has these consequences. But as an adult, almost none of us are pack animals. Mm -hmm. um, like, I'm actually not very excited about the reading group right now, which, you know, this is this weekly anarchist study group that uh, happens here in Berkeley. And part of the reason why is because everybody who's there is sort of this, these autonomous units who that are <laughs> that that basically just sort of pass for two hours and have no there's there's no friction there at all. It's just a whole bunch of, you know. I don't know, wet jelly beans or something that just slide right past each other. Whereas in the past, there have been groups of friendship groups that have come into the reading group. And obviously, individual members of those groups sort of 
came and went and had different relationships with it. But it was really nice to be confronted with, you know, 10 people who more or less like had something with each other that, that they didn't have with the rest of us. And it, and for me, I think it was probably one of my more favorite times in the study group because, because of having to confront a pack and, and it made, it made young people who otherwise would have been, you know, too insecure to talk in front of old farts. It made them a lot more confident and it, it and um, and seeing the relationships that they had with each other and how it changed over the years was really interesting and and um, and I'm really missing that and I'm really feeling like when I think about generational problems yes of course we can talk about the causes of it but one of the consequences that I'm really experiencing right now is the fact that the new generation doesn't seem to have packs. Yeah, I would say the only time I sort of had something like that was maybe sixteen, age sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. But yep. certainly not after that. And even then, it was it was not maybe as strong as the the kind of image that you're presenting. But mm-hmm. I mean, the reason I I find it interesting that to sort of marshal that empirical data is not only because I'm a, a fucking nerd and that's how I think about things, but because I think um, you know it's. It says a lot about what it means to to have conflict now, where it's as if the stakes are so high, and you you can't have the kind of of sort of I guess what anarchists would call critical solidarity or something like that, where you know where criticism is seen as a positive thing that you that a friend gives a friend in order to, you know, maybe keep the pack together or keep the, the, the pack having an evolving vision. And instead it can actually mean sort of it, that you're putting the relationship in jeopardy. Um, and that's, I have seen that, especially as the emailer was saying, as an urban phenomenon where it's so easy to suddenly stop seeing someone altogether that you won't necessarily even cross paths unless it's at the fucking grocery store. And the other part that I think is interesting about it, which is, is maybe too much of a tangent, but I just feel the, the need to mention it and maybe we could pick it up in a different episode is that, you know, when, when we talk about um, anar- anarchist perspectives on catastrophism and, and sort of running out of resources, one thing that I don't see talked about so much is just sort of psychic collapse and what the near future implications of that are going to be if you actually have people who are in a real way losing the capacity to be functional humans in a social world. Yeah, I think I would start this whole conversation from a bit of a different direction, which is to sort of, um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about politically is the difference between what we are and what an activist is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, so, you know, for a while I, I, I was using this precise term that sort of seemed like a sloppy insult, but over time it, it, it took a lot of precision for me and, and that's struggleismo. So right now I, <laughs> I would, I define, I define a struggleismo as an activist who has learned insurrectionary rhetoric and, um, uh, and, and so, so I would actually approach this question from from the perspective of uh, of an activist who saw Occupy as like 
a peak, right? And so for them, Occupy was this moment where they actually got to be part of a pack, right? It was a group of people who got to sort of more or less be around each other for about a month. They they got to feel real intensity. They They got to do the closest thing that they may ever do in their life to that that moment, that insurrectionary moment that sort of, you know, that that's well advertised in anarchist circles, but not necessarily, you know, doesn't necessarily exist. And um and so I think about this um this this reader or this listener who sort of complains about the fact that we don't talk about police struggle, prison strike, uh North Dakota etc you know really what they're saying is that what they want out of a podcast or what they want maybe even out of critical people talking about doing a podcast is they want activism uh they want to they want to hear more stories about it they they want they want the pack to happen to some greater or lesser degree they want people who agree with them to sort of share share with them their experiences and their ideas and uh and, you know, so for me, like when I look at this list of, of things that they wish we were doing, I really look at, at why is it that politically I just can't stomach this when I could stomach Occupy. And um, and part of the reason why, of course, is because Occupy had no demands, right? The way in which Occupy maintained its anti-political nature for me was very important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a, there's actually a, a book review on Goodreads that's sort of funny. It's about uh, Blessed is the Flame, and it it basically turns the book review into a criticism of me, and it oh, sort really? of says, <laughs> and it says that the the, the Aragorn esque um, perspective is to do nothing, and that's uh-huh. absolutely not true, right? What and I it's what also I'm, not what the book is about at all, right? <laughs> absolutely. Well, except that they're basically saying you know because the book's about nihilism and. Um, but yeah, right. Of course, and the the book itself is absolutely not about doing nothing. And and it, it just that, so that's clear, actually it's it's a book that uses concentration camp resistance as a way of framing nihilism, or nihilism as a way of framing concentration camp resistance. I suppose would be the better way of putting it. Right. But the but the act the author is clearly coming from more or less an activist type perspective, and and so the the reviewer was basically criticizing the author for for basically having that perspective at the same time that they're talking about nihilism. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, I, but I guess the, the, the point to me and, and, you know, of course the thing I would say to the, to the listener, which is similar to what it is that you said is that, um, yeah, go somewhere else. If, if you want content that's, that conforms to your version of reality, go to that content. Um, what we're trying to do is something a little different. And, uh, and I think that the, you know that I, I want to continue to enrich the critical conversation around activism, but I, in no way, shape, or form, conflate that with that you should do nothing. I mean, and this is the thing that just boggles my mind over and over again. You just can't look at my life and my participation in anarchism as doing nothing. You might not like it. You might disagree that publishing or you know propagandizing is is an important task, and that's fair enough. But you, but it's not the same thing as nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, and and uh, I mean the unfortunate thing about it is it's a kind of um, recapitulation of the criticism that most people give to the anarchist, which is you know you say you're against all these things, but what are you for? And if you can't give me an extremely 
concrete A to Z blueprint, then I think you're full of shit. So that the activist criticism of, of what you're talking about is just a sort of crappy recapitulation of that same argument. Yeah. Which, which I call functionalism. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of people, especially cops, have a very functional view of the world. Mm-hmm. That, that which works is good. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So where do you want to go now with the forgiveness topic? Well, I actually wasn't trying to slide. I was sort of stepping back and going into the the negative feedback. Actually, to begin with talking about forgiveness, for me, the, the reason I really liked this email and I really liked this idea is because of the incredible challenge it presents. Because because I come from a perspective that perhaps overvalues the gang form, um, you know, the gang form has some problems to it. And one. <laughs> and No. <laughs> well, but but one of those problems is 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 that forgiveness isn't part of the gang form. Right. Right. Excommunication like, is. It's not exactly excommunication, war. Mm. Right. And so to me, you know, clearly I don't normally use war in this context because to me war is is, is about how the state engages with with things but you know but it, it it is a fair criticism of the gang form that it's oftentimes many states and so so to me that the the question of forgiveness really is about the lack of formality that there is in all sort of uh hostilities so so right now for instance when we're talking about antifa um like the politics of antifa we're not even talking about them because frankly in general there isn't a politics of antifa um you know, Antifa has a single mission, and um, and one of the pointed aspects of it is that it excuses any behavior in the form of that single mission. So, for instance, I know of many situations where Antifa people have called the cops, and they've used the cops as, as the way in which they've solved the problem. And they, they definitely have used the media and, and sort of like call-out campaigns to cancel events of people who they, you know, would rather be fighting with or something. Um, and so the great thing about this from the perspective of Antifa is it's allowed a lot more people to be involved in Antifa-type ac- activities, doing doxing campaigns, you know, doing the phone calls, yada, yada, yada. So it's not just tough guys anymore. But on the flip side, it's not exactly political in the sense that I use the word, or in, in a positive sense, at all. It's a, you know, it's a single-issue program. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and so that's the hallmark of activism is that it can be broken down into more or less digestible issues that are more or less easy for people to latch onto. Right. I mean, that's how you grow. That's how you grow the struggle. That's how you bring people in. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when we define activism, it's, I think at some point it gets a little slippery because, um, and, and this is why the sort of struggleismo terms started to become what I was using is because uh, a lot of people who are in point of fact activists, which, you know, obviously is a loaded word, um, have have read enough insurrectionary material to no longer say the things that you're accusing them of. And so if if, if they if they don't use that language but they do the same things, are they are they activists or not? Right. I mean 
I, I hear what you're saying about how I am getting slippery with the term, and I think the problem is, for me, the term doesn't have a whole lot of content beyond being a rhetorical bludgeon, right? Yeah. So uh, I don't know how we're not guilty of that in this conversation unless we do something that you wouldn't like, which is lay out a very clear definition. <laughs> well, no, no, but the, but the reason I don't like it is exactly for this moment, because what, what if we... If we spent a bunch of time deciding what the definition of activism was, that doesn't that mean that anyone else is – yeah, it, that's not what it means for me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but but the, the, point, the point to me in, in sort of going here is to say that I've never experienced – like <clears throat> I've – I have not experienced a, a clear defining of terms of what hostility means outside of sort of gang sort of circles. So when I was an anti-racist skinhead, you know, the terms were very clear. We fight until we can't fight anymore. But most of the time in our in our case, we were so incredibly outnumbered by, by fascists in the town that I, or Nazis, by the town that I lived in, that we would not engage in the fighting that we would like to do at all. Um, and And so today right you know after my after my things were vandalized by what i suspect are anti-fa type people but but could be anyone how do i like like the terms of hostility have now been expanded to such an extent that it means that my things are targets mm-hmm. and and um and so what does that mean in terms of my behavior? What does that mean in terms of forgiveness? So so I think it's worthwhile to say that I absolutely could forgive the people who did the thing if they were to basically pay for the damage they did. I don't need them to say sorry, but but I absolutely like they've made me suffer for no and you know, and I'm absolutely underemployed. <clears throat> and and so I, I guess the the question to me <clears throat> is under what situations is forgiveness possible? Because on some level, forgiveness is about understanding uh, another person. And the very nature of a lot of activist stuff in particular is that it doesn't understand the other position. It's why sort of the Trump view of the world and the Clinton view of the world seems so dramatically different from each other because in point of fact, they, they, they don't agree on terms. So forgiveness makes sense in the Christian context because everybody agrees that we are, you know, before the Lord. <clears throat> everybody agrees that the church is a social organization that sort of dominates our life, and so forgiveness makes a lot more sense in that context because we we have to reconcile ourselves with the things that we share. But of course, as urban people who politically are working on very different projects and really don't have a lot of overlap with each other, any engagement that we have is more or less going to be a type of friction that we, that we have not negotiated. Yeah. 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 You're taking this in a, in a direction that I, I did want to touch on at some point. Um, that's a nice segue, which is that, you know, if, if you don't have a, it's it's sort of you could say it's the difference between the modernists and the postmodernists, right? Because if you if you have a sort of shared narrative of the world and shared definitions of good and evil, 
then it's very easy to have a coherent conversation of, I recognize what I did to you was wrong. I chose it of my own free will. And therefore, here's my confession and I'm absolved and we can all go home and feel better. But if, as you said, you don't even have a sort of shared terminology, then there's absolutely no benchmark of value to point to. And and that's, I guess, where I tie it back to the empathy, where I think that with the, with the decrease of empathy, there's a loss of ability to even have that shared perspective at all. Are we sort of the, losing the thread here? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I think that, um, so one of the insults that, that people turn to sort of once, once they become exhausted with how annoying who the, who they're debating is, is something along the lines of you should leave anarchism. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, for instance, you know, it, it would be tempting to say that the the, the pro market anarchists right, should should leave, right? That, that an anarcho capitalist is not an anarchist, um, uh, or a transhumanist, or obviously a lot of people think that a nihilist, right? It's not an anarchist. And um, but the truth is, is that in general, it's a debate point that happens online, and not much is done about it. And so I, I guess the, the open question that I have, and definitely the thought exercise, is, you know, one, do we define the terms of our hostility and, and the, the parameters in which it's acceptable? Earlier on, you sort of made the point that, like, clearly we have left the, uh, the terrain of rational conversation. And, of course, we have long since. But, you know, I haven't heard of a ton of examples within the anarchist space of people turning around and vandalizing other people's shit. Um, but this absolutely was the case back in the Antifa days or, you know, when I was an ARA. And, um, uh, and so if that's the case, you know, what does it look like for people who sort of take a more philosophical or critical position? Because we'll lose most of the fights for starters. Um, you know, we might, we might have a silent majority or something, but they're a silent majority of a bunch of bookie nerds that aren't so much better at fighting than the vegans, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, I, I, I miss the days when, um, when I was surrounded by people who were scarier than I'm surrounded by today. Yeah. And, and obviously par partially missing them is because of this particular you know moment, but. Uh, so we we did have a couple of readings that we were going to do for this um, for this episode. Uh, to be honest, I did not read them, but I probably have some thoughts based on. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so one of the pieces that you suggested was the it, it was sort of a last interview with with Vanzetti, and it was when he he was incarcerated and before he was executed some journalists went and talked to him and um and there there was a lot of um back and forth about you know was it did he was he guilty or innocent and you know what were the implications of this action and and one of the things that the 
the person interviewing him <clears throat> sort of urges him to do is basically forgive the people who are imprisoning and exe- and subsequently executing him. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of back and forth where Vanzetti says, do you realize how much I've suffered and my life is being destroyed, not only from years of imprisonment, but then execution as well. And the person says, yes, that makes sense. And then they tie it to religion for a second, but that's not really the crux of the piece. Um, and Vanzetti basically says he, he doesn't regret any violence or any violence on the part of, of his comrades because he thinks that that was totally necessary, but says that he will think about what the person's saying about urging forgiveness. And then the punchline is that supposedly before he gets executed, he publicly says that he does forgive the mm. people who are doing this to him. And then he's dead and that's the end. And to me, a lot of that is kind of tied up in propaganda in the way that that the piece frames it, because the journalist is saying, ultimately, you will be the ultimate good guy if you do this, because you were innocent in the first place and these bad guys did all these bad things to you. And then in the end, your goodness is so overwhelmingly powerful that you still come out on top with the moral high ground and therefore people should care more about your ideas. Mm -hmm. And so that's not to me the most exciting instance of this. And, um, and it's, it's one of the things that kind of, kind of falls apart with what I was saying before, where if you don't have a shared narrative and you don't have shared benchmarks of value, then the forgiveness conversation does break down. And I think it's one of the challenges of, and and one of the things that people really don't like about the anarcho-nihilist perspective is if you don't believe in good or bad guys, then a lot of stuff starts to fall apart because you can't blame the rich and the powerful for being evil people, even though you have these sorts of people that are very easy to make into villains like David Koch or something like that. Um, But when you, a lot of that falls on its face when you have something like Freddie Perlman talking about how even the Lugal in Leviathan is, is not uh, this free and powerful man because even he is sort of caught up in the machinations of, these structures that become bigger than us. And at the same time, all the slaves are the ones who are really turning the gears and the springs. And so no one starts to look especially innocent or guilty. Everyone looks like some kind of mishmash of both. And then the kind of Christian. Let me, let me pause you because you're actually, you're, 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 you're flipping through topics pretty quickly. So, (laughs) Um, so the thing that I think is really important here is, is to talk again, to talk about the weaknesses of both sides, because the weakness of the sort of post-structuralist position or the post-Nietzschean position is nobody cares about the philosophical truth of the matter. 
and and so what it is that you said of course is absolutely true like you know coke is a is a slave to a set of machinations that they did not control also um or you know the the cop tends to go home and be miserable right these are all these tr- these are truths right but um but i think especially you know people in the activist sphere they're operating on the on the on the level of like they're not talking about people they're talking about structures and uh and the thing about forgiveness and and the whole sort of motivation for christians and 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 the like to to believe in forgiveness is because it's a way to 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 talk about the people rather than the structures and and i and i actually think that this is actually one of the places where egoism has a has an open question um, or, or perspectives that sort of focus so much on on the particularity of people mm. is that at some at some point the particularities of people is that they are neither good nor evil. So you have to reconcile with them as individuals, and it definitely makes it impossible to start stabbing bourgeois people on the streets, um, even even if that's what some individuals types have done. But I guess I guess from our for from my perspective, um, <clears throat> the the question that Vanzetti asked, you know sort of was asked and answered is a totally unfair question, right? Like, can you do this human thing, which is to see people as you know individuals outside the system that they're in, when when you are absolutely being racked on the rack of these institutions and and all the rest. And and of course, like you know, it, it, it's a bummer to hear that 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 you know he bent his knee in this in this direction. But um, but I do think that especially anarchists of that early 20th century, the Galeanists, you know, they they were playing exactly in the terrain that that sort of the anarchist position kind of makes fun of 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 being good in a world of evil. Yeah, heroes. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. He he was supposed to be the ultimate hero in that moment, which is you know, to to be to humanize others and to be a sort of superhuman. Because who yeah. would fucking do that? Who would not just say fuck you right before they get executed in that kind of situation after years of suffering? Um, and we know plenty of people who who basically see themselves the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's why I think. To, to maybe put, to point in some sort of conclusion, for me at least, um, if you do have what you're calling the, the post-Nietzschean or post-Nietzschean Perlman hybrid perspective where you know, no one's really the bad guy or the good guy or the slave or the master, and instead we're all sort of caught up in this, this awful thing that feels bigger than us because it, it comes from thousands and thousands of tiny gestures from everyone that bring us to our crisis, then that sort of classical conception of forgiveness as I did the bad thing and it's my fault because I have free will and here's me confessing to you now, absolve me and and we can all go home, doesn't really work. And instead what works is just some kind of recognition of a shared narrative of yes i did this thing i acknowledge it and it's not so much about being absolved it's about at least having a sort of basic shared narrative of of 
something bad happened and we're all part of it in our own way and I acknowledge it. And that for me in my own personal life is what I've found works the best and you don't have to maybe make the demands that of of empathy and that sort of thing that people are increasingly incapable of and um you don't have to have it uh end up in the situation that I've had in my life where you have people that suddenly leave your life and you never speak to them again and it just seems silly yeah I, i'm definitely a lot more sympathetic to a, a position that Lawrence Chirac used to say all the time which which more or less is that for him anarchism means leave me alone um <laughs> wow and and you know uh, um the difference, of course, for me is that I still want to be surrounded by people. I still want there to be a, a sort of vibrant uh, thing happening. But um, but I, I really do feel like the, I mean, whatever, you know, especially recently, but, but, but the, the way in which, you know, one of my definitions of an activist is a, is a busybody, um, you know, one who's not satisfied unless they sort of get to judge everybody else's um, – lifestyle and have a, and have input on it. And this is, you know, you see this a lot more amongst the people who are college age and who, who are doing all that uh, accountability process type stuff. But, um, yeah. Yeah. That reminds me. What I is, wonder. Go I, ahead. So, oh, I, it sounds like you had something to tie that off. Well, I was going to say, uh, if you want to wrap up with the Quinn points, Oh, no, I kind of already covered. But um, I was wondering if to tie it back to what we framed the whole piece with here is are are we capable of answering any of the listeners' questions here? Um, Which is, uh, let's see, is cutting people off even the best tactic for us? Are there unrecoverable transgressions? And are perpetrators not also victims of a sort? So I feel like we we kind of answered the last question, or at least I did, and you seem to agree with me. Um, and as far as cutting people off, even the best tactic, well, I guess you, you gave your answer against Lawrence, and you know mine would be no, it's 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 not, and and instead, uh, maybe forgiveness has to look like something more like non-passive acceptance or something like that. Yeah, I guess. For me, the the general response I give to all, all those questions is that all those questions assume that we have a social contract that we don't have, um, and and that's the harsh thing about the current time is that sort of people are lost and aimless when it when as it pertains to other people because we don't we don't know what to expect what we what we rightfully should expect from other people, and so a lot of times. You know, when when defriending somebody is as simple as you know, taking them off of your Instagram feed, like like uh, that that leaves everybody very unsettled. And I and I think of course you experience that most easily in an urban environment. And um, this person lives in as big of a city as San Francisco, and and I think that the that if you don't want to live in a way that looks and feels like this, 
you need to live someplace that's smaller, someplace mm-hmm. where you actually maybe know some neighbors and maybe a couple of your neighbors you like. Um, because I, I just, I just think that that all the trends point in the direction of further isolation and more of the same. You know, all the details that you gave are are, are great details describing something that sort of you can't tell when you're just looking day by day or month by month. But when you look over 40 years, it's quite clear. Mm-hmm. This this period of time has been a time of, of incredible change. There has been a revolution and it's not a positive revolution. And, you know, and but that revolution has had incredible social consequences. Mm-hmm. And of course, and I'm speaking of the, the Internet revolution. For sure. And I'm satisfied because with what you were saying before, somehow the conversation manages to come again back to Dunbar's number. <laughs> and how when you, you live in a, in a big environment that's supposed to be an actual human thing, it's just not. And that the, the human thing is at, at the small level, as much as some people, anarchists with big designs of what the, the world is supposed to be on a global level, don't want to hear that. I think it's, it's just something that's baked into the human form. I agree, although I would never call it Dunbar's number. <laughs> okay, so well, thank you very much for for joining us here, episode thirty-seven of the Brilliant, and uh, make sure to email us at the Brilliant at the Brilliant dot org. Do you have other thanks. things? Do you have a last thing you want to wrap up? Uh, I was, I was going to say uh, we sh- should do another recording in something like three weeks, and this was recorded October fifth, which I meant to give at the beginning. Ah, absolutely.